You are about to listen to Rich Tang's Letter Square Theatre Podcast with my special guest, the curmudgeonly idiot Stuart Lee. Uh, this is the final one in the series. We're hoping to make some more in June and July. You can help us in lots of different ways. Why don't you come and see me on tour? That would be a fantastic help. I'm, by the time you listen to this, I should have a young baby. I need to start making some money for myself. Uh, and so that would be a great way to help me. Go to richherring.com slash L-O-T-D-S slash tour and you can see all of the tour dates see if I'm coming near to you I'm going to be uh, in uh, coming up Colchester and uh, Aylesbury Exeter Cheddar Nottingham Wolverhampton Salford Chorley Brighton the list goes on go and check it out for yourself Uh, go to gofosterstripe.com slash badges make a one-off or monthly donation which will help us make more stuff you can go to eBay look for me Herring1967 you can buy stuff there from my, my past, which will hopefully fund my future and help us to make new stuff. If you don't want to pay for any of this, that is fine. It is free. That's why it's free. Sorry you have to listen to this message at the end. I know it annoys you, and that's the only reason I do it. Why not just tell your friends about this podcast, get them to listen to them all, uh, and hopefully they'll pay a small amount of money in order to help us keep going, because you are too me. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Well, this is a very, very special podcast. Because Richard Herring is in it. Please welcome him, Richard Herring! Thank you very much. Love to see you. Thanks for coming out. You're much better than last week's audience. So, uh, it's... Welcome to a very special, uh, it's the final Rich Tang's Leicester Square Theatre podcast of this series, or as some of the cool kids have started calling it, Rahela Stapa. That's what they're calling it. And there's a lot very excited. You're excited about uh, Stuart Lee coming on, is everyone? Ooh, you excited? Who? Did you not realise who was here? Uh, what is your favourite thing that was ever in this morning with Rich Not Judy? It was far, 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 king. We'll probably talk about that, yes. Uh, I don't know if anyone did. I don't know how the BBC didn't notice that, but I did. I did pretty much swear every single week. But to be honest, we, did, we just pretty much just swore. Anyway, the one I saw just had someone saying cock for about five minutes. I mainly was talking about cocks fighting, but it became very clear that that was not what. Uh, Andy McCaitch, uh, who's kindly given us a clapperboard for the show. Thank you for that, Andy. Uh, so, uh, what was your favourite uh, thing in uh, this morning with Shot Judy? I like a bird's eye, which is German for egg. Uh, that was a good bit. I like a bird's eye, which is German for egg. We'll see if we can get Stu. I'm hoping Stu, like when I got Harry Shearer on, I managed to get him to do some of the voices. I'm hoping I can get Stu to do. He's very cool these days, so it'll be hard to get him see if he can do. I, for me, Pliny is the best thing by far. Seriously. I would happily just watch him do that for the rest of his career. Not because it's good, just it would be satisfying. Uh, so, uh... <laughs> Uh, and uh, did you say you, so you are? I mean, we look at the YouGov, uh, the YouGov uh, website over the last uh, few weeks, where they have the archetypal Rich Terring fan or whatever fan. Now, it does the picture on that website does not look like you, but it should look like you, sir. So, uh, what's your name? Mark. Mark. And did you have a favourite uh, character or moment from this morning, Rich Not Judy? Uh, consider the Lily. 
consider the lady. That was a good bit as well. You've got very good taste, uh, all of you. Uh, my favourite, uh, the favourite bit of Pliny is uh, the one I just, the St. George one I just watched the other day because of the, as we're recording this, we've had the controversy over um, the lady tweeting a picture of uh, some flags, some St. George flags, and having to resign for putting a picture on Twitter without comment, which seems weird. Uh, but they, someone put up the St. George uh, Histor's eye, and my favourite bit is when Histor goes as the crow flies and Pliny goes as the egg. Flies. And it's like Pliny was really trying to think of a pun. <laughs> flies. Can't think of one in this. It's the best thing uh, that Stuart Lee has ever done. So will you please welcome my guest this week. He is probably best known from uh, the uh, B Sky B Up Your News. <laughs> and. Uh, and for being Pliny in, in uh, this morning, Rich Not Judy, we welcome Stuart Lee, ladies and gentlemen. Come on in. He's got three beers. Three beers. <laughs> and one of them is for me. <laughs> How are you doing, Stu? All right. A bit tired? Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's hard life, isn't it? Yeah. You'll see. I will. I... <laughs> Well, Stuart has two children. I have a child on the way. I was thinking, given I, there's, there's two things we could do with our children. A, we could do a Lee and Herring the Next Generation, where one of your children and one of my children yeah. team up. We could just give them the same material. Yeah. No one will no one remember. Or, you know, you've got one of each, so whatever I have, they could well, get married, couldn't yeah. they? Well, I my, could marry my, one of your... My kids think I'm terrible yeah. in comedy. Because um, my son stood at the side of the stage and... Uh, Watched me once and said, um, he said it's awful, he's just talking, <laughs> no one's laughing. <laughs> but they think my wife's funny because she used to dress up as things so they yeah. can see that that's supposed to be. Well, basically, they're, they're, they have the sensibilities of children, they don't really understand <laughs> what it is I'm trying to do, you know. Yeah. I don't think they should, you should really well, wait t- for 10 or 15 years yeah, and then yeah. show they might, they might enjoy it then. So uh, you don't, don't want to have an arranged marriage no. between my yet unborn child and whichever child no, could be eaten? No, no okay, we'll wait and see. But you imagine if, we, if our children had a child together. Uh, imagine, <laughs> imagine what that would be like. I'm going to call my child either Leanne or Leon. So, uh, <laughs> give him a good start in life. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, uh, we will... We <laughs> that, might, that might not make it into the final bit. So, um, that's why you should come and see it live. Uh, so, the, the, the Small Invitation Not Judy began in 1994. Yeah. Do you remember that? Well, I remember um, that you did a... You were doing um, 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 a show in Edinburgh at lunchtime called that. Yeah. And then at the last minute, I, I came in to help fill it up because there wasn't any <laughs> script or plan. Yeah. But, I, but I didn't... Um, it, it wasn't my thing. No. You know? and, 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 then, um, and then it sort of snowballed a bit. And it was quite an interesting way of sort of... Uh, satirising the economics of Edinburgh which is that it was you, you were less likely to lose as much money if you just gave tickets away to something um, 
in the street than you were if you put them through the yeah. normal system. Which is, I don't really understand why 20 years later you're still with the same management company. <laughs> given that you saw through it in the mid-90s. Um, and yet you still seem to make a big song and dance about how you're delighted to lose all this money. And yet as That's a child you essentially saw through and you expect they would be sympathetic in some way to something that you, you saw through as a child. But anyway, but that, was the, that was sort of the idea. It was making a kind of parody of an Edinburgh show whereby we didn't have anything. We, we tried to give the tickets away to people that would pay for them in the street. And then we sort of did, like, chat and, and um, mad made-up guests. And actually the looseness of it, because it had no weight of expectation around it, I think actually created a show for the telly that had the same looseness and, and freedom of expectation. I, guess, I suppose so. I mean, I don't think we... Uh, that year, in 1994, we weren't really even thinking of putting yeah. forward anything. I think people like Robin Ince came and did some stuff and uh, yeah. Tom, Bin, Tom Binns did uh, little bits yeah. and pieces in it. It was in an attic and actually the, the person on before us or after us was this sort of uh, uh, brilliant, overexcited Irishman doing something based on a kind of flimsy piece of pitch... <laughs> about the carpenters, which was Graham Norton, wasn't it? Oh, yes, and it was, yeah. yeah. Thought, um, <laughs> oh, he's never going to get any <laughs> It really was. But, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd actually forgotten the very start of this idea for a TV show, because I, I, I took this idea, and then I thought um, I had a meeting with uh, Nick... What's the guy from Anne and Nick? Was he Nick... Was, was he Nick... Nick Owen. Nick Owen. Nick Owen. I was going to say Nick Ross, but it's Nick Owen. meeting with I, Nick I, Owen. I had, a, I had met Nick Owen at the Ritz... Uh, I went. To, I went. You were living a very different life. To I went. Me. Well, because we were trying to court Nick Owen, and so he was. We, the the, I, the original idea for this show was that I would do it in the morning with Nick Owen. It's going to be called This Morning with Richard and Nick. <laughs> First I've heard uh, about no. it. I met Nick Owen. You see what he was doing. He was, I, I was just like doing the stand-up circuit, doing like thirty quid gigs in pubs. Richard Herring was at the Ritz with Nick Owen. <laughs> Trying to get his own thing going uh, with him and Nick Owen, yeah. not with me in it. This could be a very different. Then he had to come crawling back because <laughs> Nick Owen. I've totally forgotten this. Didn't... I've just this minute remembered it. But... <laughs> no memory and of I it, met really. up with him because I'd seen him. Like, he'd been on fancy football and he'd been re- and been surprisingly sort of funny and up for a lot. I lot. can't even remember who. I remember his name. Yeah. What was he? It was like a, you know, he was a vuncular uh, TV. Adrian Child sort of character. Yeah, yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> without the personality, uh, and uh, but he, he was. He, did, he was quite going to take the piss out, so it was nearly going to be sort of a semi-serious, uh, you know, not semi-serious, but t- a piss take. You involving the real right. people from it, uh, then he wouldn't do it. So, uh, so, so I got I, you. I, I got it. you in it. <laughs> but then we did it in Edinburgh. It was in 1994. We gave I gave away a car uh, as a prize. So we yeah, gave away that. prizes. So we yeah. spent the money, a lot of the money we made from it. And when so, we say a car, this was 20 years ago, where um, not all people that own cars expect to have top-of-the-range new car that they paid for in HP. Most people 20 years ago were driving around in 30-year-old cars that didn't yeah. work, and that's what he gave well, we bought, we bought a car for £300. Yeah. I mean, it was still quite a lot of money to spend, uh, but we got, got some publicity out of it, and then the, the guy came down and said, do you want I think we said, do you want to gamble? He'd won, like, £10, and we said, yeah. do you want to gamble on that on the mystery star prize? And he gambled, and he won a £300 car that was had to tax for about two more months. Yeah. Uh, and he was a student who won it, and he could drive... Uh, but he had a car already and it was the exact same model <laughs> and colour I think of car I think he drove at home and then he cra- I think he might have crashed it yeah. I think I, I might, the memory is just coming back to me but Actually, he's that, alright that same year I remember 
I was doing the Club Zarathustra show in the sort of barn venue at the Pleasance with Simon Money and Richard Thomas. And Simon Money had this idea that he would make a grand entrance onto the stage um, in a little uh, three-wheel Robin Reliant that would have been decorated with all sort of quasi-fascist regalia. <laughs> and so he bought one, customised it. Cause it'd be, it's a funny idea, basically. You'd come on stage to sort of Wagner in a sort of... <laughs> with fascist regalia on a three-wheeled Robin Reliant. And so him and Richard Thomas bought it, did it up. It took them about two and a half days to drive it to Edinburgh, where they stayed awake with amphetamines, I think. And then they got there, and it was about six inches too wide to drive through. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's another weird thing. It's funny, it's the the sort of risk-taking. I mean, I, I listened to the first half of this over there and, I, and it, I, it was me that prompted Paul to uh, say his anecdote about Secret Affair which was actually much funnier when he told it to me uh, a few weeks ago <laughs> but, um, but didn't really have the, but the part, part of why you were able to develop a show like this that ended up being this sort of mad show on the telly was because the economics were so uh, you know it was so much freer then and you could sort of afford to take chances on things and I don't know what you, you, you couldn't have you know I mean you'd do it anyway because you seem to have a masochistic delight in unnecessarily losing thousands of pounds but no one in their right mind now would develop a show with such broad uh, parameters and no obvious aims at Edinburgh um, as we did 20 years ago when, when the losses were absorbable and when you could raffle a car off that cost you 300 quid I mean it feels like it's really weird to get to your late 40s and your descriptions of your own adolescence or your 20s it sounds like you're talking about the 50s it seems like a long long time ago it was very different in terms of like the number of acts so like it really I was talking to like Sue Perkins and just thinking like in the 90s basically there was 20 or 30 people and you kind of thought oh you'll all get your turn eventually there were there were were about 60 or 70 comedy shows then there's like 600 now and, and also people did get their turn I mean, think of all the brilliant people that did shows that are much better than you and some of them better than me as well and yet, and yet loads of them didn't go on to you know I mean didn't go on to there's loads of brilliant people that we would all have seen in that period that didn't go on to that didn't go on to do anything you know and and I, and I don't think there, w- there was a meritocracy at work, and there isn't now, and there wasn't. I think it's not a meritocracy. It was just there was at least a chance. Whereas now, I think no. there's six hundred. There's six hundred shows. However, and there's lots, of, and people are better, and people are prepared. You know, we generally turned ninety nine seven. We generally turned up on the first day without anything, and we and we and we bus. We went to a flat with Richard Thomas and bust some ideas around with him, and then we said, we'll "Yeah, do this, but we we'll had we had like, uh, but we both." Individually, individually and together, we had a, a back catalogue of stuff that you could have cobbled together. You know, and I mean, it, 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 when it, whenever you talk about that period, it is worth remembering about all the brilliant people that slipped through the cracks, like Johnny Immaterial, like Kevin McAleer, like uh, I mean, do you remember that um, Scottish double act? One of the guys is uh, a cartoonist of Private Eye now, Packer, Dallas and Packer. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was really yeah. good. I mean, there's loads of stuff and. Uh, uh, and and, and they're, they're, admittedly, when you talk about last night's show here of, of new materials, uh, of the new acts, there's a professionalism about it. There's a focus about it. There's a work ethic about it. 
that was absent 20, 30 years ago. But I miss the people where you would look at their act, like the Iceman, whose act was he melted ice. <laughs> he didn't have a career plan, you know. And um, you think, I, I miss those things. Yeah, know. but there still are. I mean, I think there's... I actually think that what's going on now... You keep harking back to the 1980s as being an amazing time for comedy, and you can say that, but then the 1980s didn't have you in it, for a start. So, so, you know, the, I think now is much... But, you know, I think the broad range of stuff you get now is much more exciting, and there are loads of people doing that, those kind of things. Someone like the Iceman was great, yeah. that he would turn up and do his insane thing, but that was never going to be much more than that. Some, someone like Mr Methane is still going, and he's got yeah. that kind of act that is just a ridiculous act. So yeah. you, if you had the, the staying power to keep doing it, you could yeah, keep yeah. doing it. And I, th- I think that, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of... I suppose... There's a lot of two professional, compare, slick people. When you but, compare Mr Methane to the Iceman, yeah. I suppose, <laughs> ultimately, farts are funnier than ice. They are. <laughs> well, maybe they should have got together and... Uh, Done something where he farted on yeah, ice and you lit it, make, it yeah, melted, make yeah. some kind of fire and ice and gas. Well, then it starts <laughs> to become profound. They do. <laughs> That's what they did. But, you know, I, I, really, I think there is. I think there's a lot of very exciting comedians now. But I just, I think it would be. I know very you say, I read on I, your blogs that you say that. Yeah. But I think that's because you try to keep in with them. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. You try to keep in care. with them. I'm, not, I'm aware. Well, no, I'm you not go, in with oh, this young person on the I'm not even in with they the people. They weren't, right? Yeah. But you try to keep in with them. I'm not even in you... with the people I worked with 20 years ago. No, so I that's, mean, that's... Keep in with I'm, I've noticed you all on TV, and people. I've noticed I'm not in any of those TV well, shows. So I know that I'm not in I with any. You like to be seen as some sort of gatekeeper, <laughs> like patronising the young people. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm yielding. I am, I'm lying down, allowing them to run over me. I have no. <laughs> I'm defeated. Uh, let's face it. But uh, so we did. Well, so we, we took. I mean, I think like the influences for this morning for me because I think this was it was something. I, I remember you were more cautious and not sure about. Well, I had enough, you know, yeah. of television, <laughs> and I, 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 I the, the first series of Fist of Fun. I like the aesthetic of it, and I like the, I like the amount of preparation and planning we did for it. The second one, I didn't like the look of it, and I was panicked about how we were rushed into it, and I didn't really want to do anything again and this was this was your thing and I piggybacked into it but I think actually because it was a, a thing that was thrown together and you had to write loads every week it was actually very good for me to have to think like that because I like to meticulously plan things and I think that it was a it was a great uh, thing to have to work on the hoof and also the fact that it was filmed live made all the difference because Something that was new that you'd only that you've been working on that week as a dialogue still had that flavour of yeah. uh, and weirdly about you know when you look, when you when you look at the the dialogues that are floating around on YouTube when we're doing the double act stuff together some of it works some of it doesn't but the stuff that works really well is is really great because it was really happening in real time and it was still sort of being assembled at the point where it was filmed and one of the problems you have with comedy for telly is it, it, it necessarily has the dead hand of rehearsal on it which can help it but can also take the edge off it and in the second series of Fist of Fun there was material that wasn't properly written which had also been rehearsed to death <laughs> <laughs> and, um, in, uh, but in this you sort of had the, the thing where it was it was still like 
yeah. you know, coming together. In, in well, and we're making stuff up as we go yeah, along. Yeah. And I think it was very that was very exciting and vital that it is live. But yeah, we are. You can see us making up ideas and making each other laugh. Yeah. On, on the on the actual air and yeah when it does also when it doesn't work it's still great because I think we didn't feel that at the time no. but when it doesn't work it's actually great when you're, there's a bit where you're I remember it happening where the, one of the early interviews you were confused about what was going on but they were talking to me about what was going on and they had, oh, you yeah. were talking so they weren't talking to you but then you're going can someone tell me what you were <laughs> and you're going what's no, going no. on and uh, well, how long have we got for this bit and it's kind of funny because yeah, yeah. that shouldn't happen on TV no uh, <laughs> well, but actually most of it was things that shouldn't yeah. happen on TV and actually loads of things that we, we tried really hard to do lots of things that we weren't allowed to do on television like, I remember I, I had a real beer in my bonnet about how because sort of we were sort of aware that it was going out early on Sunday morning and in the late 90s there was, there was a drug called ecstasy that lots of people took and there was a whole culture of people going out and dancing to, on this drug and we were sort of aware that there was a kind of come down culture people had been out all night watching the programme or, or just people had been out on like Saturday night drinking and I, I sort of liked the idea that it would be jarring and upsetting to them to wake up <laughs> and watch this programme and um, I remember the... One of the things that would make them feel ill that they were watching, and one of the things we tried to do was to put the theme music for um, things that fall over or when insects attack much, much louder than anything else. And it was from a piece by the avant garde composer Harrison Burtwistle, and I wanted to go in like really, really loud. And uh, but it turned out there was all these rules, BBC rules about volume. You couldn't put it in. You can't suddenly have volume shifts. A limiter will kick in. And then we did, we worked, we, so we looked into this and we worked out, the way Brian Eno got round this on producing a, a Talking Heads album was that instead, he, wasn't, he wanted to increase the volume but he wasn't allowed to, so he I- increased certain densities of certain frequencies so that it felt like it was getting louder even though it didn't actually go over. <laughs> anyway, we did that to, um, to the, uh, yeah. we, we did a thing of treating certain frequencies so they were more penetrating on the intro music to um, when things fall over and when it, which lasts it's about a five second bit but it was there, there were lots of things that we managed to do that we weren't really supposed to do including just a jarring sonic pain for people <laughs> in the mornings so there were all sorts of things like that happening well I think it was I kind of really wanted this time slot and you were kind of dubious about it but I, I liked it because it was you know, I think the Sunday show had done the slot before us, but I kind of thought, A, yeah. it's live. I think the thing that was great for us is we'd done two series of Fist Fun, which were not only rehearsed, but when, they, when we recorded them, we had to do everything 15 times. Yeah. And so what was really appealing about this morning was we, didn't, we only did it once. Even if it went wrong, it went wrong, but we only got to do it once. So that, and that meant we were, it was a 45-minute yeah. record, and then it was over, and yeah. then we went and drank vodka and Red Bull all afternoon. Uh, amazing times. <laughs> it was an amazing time for comedy. But uh, the... Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I was very influenced in it, which I think you're spot by the banana splits, which most people will be too young to remember. But that's that was what I really I wanted, and it really the banana splits had the same thing, which was a there was a real kind of drug influence on there. I think the people were probably on drugs in the banana splits, which we weren't, and Tiz was. Which again, I was watching a bit, which goes a little bit too far in the second episode where we've got the King, and we get we ask for the King who's got the least money on them. And then it's a little tiny kid, like he's uh, called about 10 years old, but he's really brilliant. His, his edict is that Jim Davidson should be shut up in a prison. Uh, and, uh, wow, he was ahead of his time. <laughs> well, I'm just taking my cue from Tizzles. I'm just really shouting in this kid's yeah. face in a way you kind of go, oh, that's actually... Well, actually, that, that's interesting you bring that up, because um, 
uh, well, I grew up in the Midlands, and um, in the early 70s, there was this strange thing that happened. Chris Tarrant, bizarrely, who now seems like a pillar of the establishment, and uh, various people like John Gorman, who were from 60s avant-garde theatre, and uh, like weird kind of uh, uh, proto-alternative comedy groups. Um, David Rappaport, who was yeah. an early acolyte of Ken Campbell, who's one of the sort of avatars of uh, weird pre-alternative comedy. Um, and, all, all, and, and, and Lenny Henry, who was like doing alternative comedy before it had a name. And, and um, they, they all had this strange slot on ATV, Midlands Independent Television, on um, Saturday mornings, where they sort of did this bizarre anarchic programme, which we, we remember as being proto-punk and sort of psychedelic hippie kind of programme. But actually, it's full of the usual racist and sexist early 70s, <laughs> if you go back and look at it. But your memory of it is being this sort of unlicensed... Uh, period, and there was a very anodyne BBC copy of it, uh, Swap Shop, uh, with uh, Noel Edmonds, which is sort of the same thing, but with every single piece of imagination or genius <laughs> taken out of it. And, um, but you, where you lived as a child, you got that, didn't you? I got Pop- it in Loughborough, in Loughborough and then, yeah. but then I moved from Loughborough when I was eight to Cheddar, and yeah. I got to Cheddar, and the man installing the TV, my sister said, do you have Shangalang in this... Uh, which was the basic rollers. My sister was obsessed with the basic rollers. And then we went, yes. And she went, yes. And then I said, do you have Tiswas? And he said, no. And I cried. <laughs> I was 28 years old. And actually... <laughs> but actually, I think, I think a lot of things that you do as an adult, you don't really realise, but you're trying to... Um... You're trying to recreate things that were profoundly, yeah. you know, it made an impression on you as a child. And actually, I think, looking at it now with 20 years hindsight, there was a sort of tears was thing going. I'm thinking, well, you know, you know, how can you, how do they get away with that on a Saturday morning? And how can we get away with the same kind of thing on a on a Sunday morning? And partly why we got away with it, to be fair, was because no one was remotely interested in it, and so um, no one even watched it to check what was going on. And when it stopped, no one noticed. <laughs> and um, when it was going out, not. And in fact, one week, um, two things that happened, giving an indication of the extent to which no one's interested in it. One week, about five minutes before we were supposed to do the live transmission, Charlie Hansen, the producer, who also wasn't that interested in it, to be honest, he uh, just not really interested in anything he does. He, um, he was very good, but he doesn't care. But he, um, he does Derek. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, obviously, he's like doesn't give a fuck, does he? He, um, he, uh, he's very good at, you know, realising the vision of the artist, but, um, but he's not. But he, uh, he told us there was a kind of panic at about 12.10 before it started talking. There wasn't a, no one had turned the transmission thing on, had they? Right. There was some thing that was supposed to broadcast it from the studio, and it had been written down as like a VT, had been played in, and right. they, they had to, like, put it onto some other thing. Uh, to get it to work. Then another week, it used to go out live on the Sunday, and I remember I, I used to do the edit with a with an editor guy on like the Thursday, and then it used to go out live 45, 50 minutes on Sunday morning. Then there was an edit for the Friday night, and it would go out at 6.15 on the Friday, 6.30 on the Friday, a half-hour edit, and I used to do the edit on Thursday afternoon. And I remember one Thursday morning, we were in rehearsal for the next week's show, and the Evening Standard came in. This is in the old days when there was newspapers before you all just looked at things on, <laughs> online. The newspaper came in, and I went, oh, fuck, look. And we were, they'd moved it to the Thursday night, but no one had told us. No one had told us. So no one had made the half-hour in it. <laughs> so the programme was supposed to go out, didn't exist, and no one had 
thought it was worth telling us that it was going out. They'd moved it because there was tennis on or live coverage of a lawnmower or something. So they moved it. And then we had to do the edit in about two hours that yeah. afternoon. So that's an indication of the extent to which Narn was interested. And in the, in the last few weeks when it was supposed to be being cut, we did, to be fair, we did have our people that supported us, like Paul... Um, Jackson. Jackson and a couple of other people. And I remember they were desperately trying to get uh, Jane Root, who was in charge of BBC at the time, to just come and see it just once so she would know what it was she was cancelling. And it just kind of never came. But actually, those things, in retrospect, mean that because no one was interested in it and no one tried to stop what we were doing because they didn't even know it was on. You, you, you mustn't view this as like some struggle of outlaw artists against authority. It wasn't. Authority was not interested or aware. So it was not like a heroic struggle. It was just something that happened. Well, like someone doing a fart in a lift. But there was no one in the lift. So it wasn't like... It wasn't like... It was just nothing. Um, and then, and th- th- then, th- th- and then 20 years later, you've got all this stuff that was somehow allowed to happen. But it does look insane. But I remember John Plowman, who was the executive yeah. producer, uh, saying one way, I can't remember what it was, but saying if you, there was something we wanted to keep in. I mean, that, we had a lot of power because we could keep it in, I suppose because it was live. Yeah. And he said, if you, cut, if, you, if you don't cut this, I think it'll be a problem for getting extra stuff. And we kept the thing in. There's a bit in one I saw where you were just at the end. You go... Um, uh, on Sky TV they show The Simpsons and, and Seinfeld at good times at proper times you're kind of complaining about yeah, when yeah, we're going yeah. out and then say, and basically say go and watch Sky instead of, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just and you kind of think yeah I can probably see why the BBC weren't that but you know what they, not, they, were, they, were, they should have been sort of accountable yeah, on some yeah. level because there was a kind of weird thing where you know you were supposed to be grateful which we obviously were but on the other hand they the, the, all the things in the nineties, all the things that comedians loved. We were, all comedians loved Seinfeld, you know, and yet, and the BBC had that, and yet it was out at eleven forty-five. Yeah, well, night, they, but it, the, it they didn't. They had the Simpsons. They put it out on a blue. Saturday at five or yeah. something, and they didn't know. And then Seinfeld and Larry Sanders were on in the middle of the night. Yeah. And, and you go anywhere else in the world, and those things were both on at six o'clock every single night yeah, because yeah. everyone loved them. So and, I suppose it was sort of, you know, we sort of thought we were. I suppose we sort of thought arrogantly we were belonged in that world, and that's why we <laughs> well, it's you know, it's I think we did. Uh, it's, uh, it's I think because of that, it's very anarchic and it's very you know the the ones I watched again, they, there's a real excitement to it because it's live, and there's and it's real. There's a, there's, there's a bit where Joanne wins the ironic review, which again sort of is very much like things that were later to come, a sort of fly-on-the-wall documentary about, uh, about a, 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 an officer, well, a magazine of idiots, of, of, uh, of uh, the kind of Shoreditch twats yeah. uh, that would later get their own series, uh, in it, for someone else writing it. Uh, but Joe, I'm mean, basically for like three minutes just saying the word cock, about cockfighting, but it very clearly, clearly becomes that she's talking about the men's cocks. And she kind of think that's kind of I can't that wouldn't go out at nine, nine o'clock or eight thirty now. So it's sort of it's uh, sort of been strange. And yeah, and, and as someone mentioned, I would or every week swear during the songs when we are crowning the king. Yeah, every week it would, I would go. There's only one king, wang king, wang king, and then fa 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 king, fa king. Every week I would do. You must that. be very proud. of I am very proud. Of it. <laughs> I'm still proud. Uh, do you think that partly why you were allowed to do that is because people would have been embarrassed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, lots of it's insane. The first series ends with us singing hymns. Do you remember we've got the audience no, to sing a hymn? I'll tell you what, and right, then, it's been very interesting coming here 
I don't really remember anything about it. I don't really... I mean, I, I don't remember much, to be honest. You remember a lot about the editing process. I know, but I don't remember much from about 1995 <laughs> to 2001. But we and do... I don't know why that is. And I, but, but, but what's nice about it is when, when things pop up on YouTube... Like there, was, there was a thing this week where there was a history I sketch about the England flag. And because there's been people talking about the England flag this week, it sort of popped up on the internet... And I watched it, and I have no memory of doing it or having anything to do with it. And I was, I was sort of enjoying it. I was thinking, oh, that's really funny, that voice, that crow's voice. So it's sort of like, you, I sort of, they kind of take me by surprise as if I have no relationship with them. And I, I do have a... I, I think I mean, we should do a, History and Pliny for real well, as a real, a, a genuine uh, kid show. Well, the, the problem is, right, I don't want to... But, you can't we, okay, those there. puppets, right... We designed those puppets, and then a cartoonist who had men a model person made them. And then they went... Um, the, the BBC had them, obviously. Then after the series finished, a number of things happened. One was my electric guitar, which I'd had for about 20 years, which I'd used in a sketch in it, was mysteriously lost, and no-one offered to compensate me for that. And the other thing that happened... A Fender copy, it was really good. And the uh, other thing that happened was that the, the puppets of Kistor and Pliny stayed at the BBC and started being used as sort of background artists in Saturday morning kids' show television stuff, which really irritated us. We managed to get them back. But tragically, when I just moved recently, I put the Pliny in the cellar, but I didn't know the cellar wasn't uh, damp-proofed. Oh, no. Yeah, he's got all, like, a kind of crust on him now. <laughs> well, his store, I've got his store. He's rotted, basically. Yeah, I've got his store, but all of his limbs have fallen off. And yeah. So we should do it with the well, rotten, I think it's exactly the kind and... of thing that uh, the, the Leicester Square Theatre's Museum of Comedy was <laughs> in, uh, displaying could, in its own cabinet. We could yeah. remake the puppets. I mean, they yeah. were expensive. They were like £3,000 each, I seem to remember, in, in the 1990s. But they were really expensive to make. They were, cause oh, they were, it was that mine was slightly... <laughs> his store had a slight animatronic yeah, eye. Yeah, but you were never good enough to use it. <laughs> really. You just sort of rocked him around. Yeah. I did and, that on purpose. Uh, moved his mouth... Um, in a thing that was irrelevant to what you were saying. Much, very much like Tommy Cooper playing the, yeah. the piano badly. Well, you had to be really Les good Dawson. at it to yeah, do it wrong. Be, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, no, those, do, those do have a, a brutal quality about them. Yeah. I think it's really funny. It's sort of like, and I, again, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, things take you, take you by surprise because you can't, you can't actually remember it. I mean, I remember just being, that we used to have to do those at the end of the morning and it really hurt your arm and I was yeah, I think really we tired did, I think we did like five in a row I mean we I think never, we recorded them all in a day and I just remember you had to, to wear a balaclava I mean I know like people who work in mines <laughs> that's really hard and stuff but I had to crouch behind a wall wearing a balaclava holding my arm up doing a high voice for about five hours up. once and um, <laughs> You know, really do you remember where they came from? Do you remember where the idea of Histor's Eye came from, though? It was in a... Uh, we wrote a radio pilot with, uh, which was going to... With Steve, Steve Coogan and Patrick Marber. And we did... We recorded it, I think, called Corridor, which was... Uh, and Gosh, then I was going to yeah. do it as whatever became of where we did yeah, a yeah, sort yeah. of a, a parody of the Perfumo affair. Uh, so it was, looking, it was looking back at, in history. Which needed to be... <laughs> You'll notice the Perfumo affair has not raised its head since... Since that was never broadcast... <laughs> And so then, I, I don't know why, I mean, we obviously came up with his store, his store's eye, because we thought, yeah. his store's eye. Uh, but I don't know why, I mean, Pliny obviously is a, yeah, it's still a story. Historian, yeah. But it's kind of an odd leap to make, to name them that. Well, to you, maybe. Yeah. 
yeah, that's yeah, the way I work. But Pliny was... Yeah. Uh, I mean, Pliny's an amazing character. Well, it's very kind of you to say, but I don't... Yeah. But again, I don't remember giving any thoughts here. I just yeah. remember thinking that it was... It sort of... It, it, it worked well that... Do you think we should yeah. do... that When we do the commentaries for these episodes... Should we do one whole episode as history? Well, I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could even get that. Do that voice anymore? It's too I think, high. I think to do it for but, forty-five minutes, yeah. of just finding egg because they're, they're just you know. No, they, I, I mean, I, if I do find those really funny when I see them, and I and I again, but again, it. The, I mean, it, it's funny. It's strange, like being forced to confront these things with a distance because you, you can't remember having done them. So it's like another person did them, and of course, you'll tell me. Realistically, another person did do them because yeah. there's no, you know, your whole body's been replaced since then on a cellular level. I will know. tell you that, and it is true. It's the kind of thing you say. It is. But, uh, but so you look, you look at them and you can sort of enjoy them, and, but it seems arrogant because you go, nah, I'm not sure anything. Oh, I did that. Uh, but it's, but I, do, I do like those. I think, they, I think they, they, they have a cumulative effect as well of the sort of uh, the irritation level yeah. of them. Uh, you know, uh, good. Good, and uh, we'll talk about this, uh, but there's one episode where we are both at the beginning. We start each episode with quite a weak thing where we dress us up from something from the week and then just go, I'm Jeremy Clarkson, welcome to this. But there was one where we started both dressed as Jimmy Savile. Do you remember this one? Yeah, again, I had had no memory of it until this Jimmy Savile thing came out and then it was on the internet. I don't remember doing it, Um, but Um, yeah, we're running... it's the London Marathon that we're, week. We're in the London Marathon. We're both just Jimmy Savile. We're sort of running towards the camera. And you say... I go, it goes... It's uh, basically going, now then, now then, now then, now then. And then we go, uh, it's London Marathon. I hope no one dies. And then I think you say, uh, if they do Bagsy, I take them to the morgue. <laughs> or the other way. Now, but why that was is... This is an interesting thing. Now, because Jerry Sadovitz, who's a much better comedian than either of us, did a routine about uh, Savile in the 80s, and he's now being hailed by uh, journalists. Oh, he lifted the lid. But actually, we didn't know anything about it. There was this insane rumour that everyone heard about. It was like a joke that Jimmy Savile was a necrophiliac. And of course it was ludicrous, because no one was a necrophiliac. So you couldn't possibly believe it was real. And of course, we wouldn't have done that joke if we thought it was real. So it was just like a response to this mad, stupid sort of showbiz rumour. It's as ludicrous as the Mark Armand one, which the more you think about, it's not possible, is it? I mean, how would you... They don't have the technology to analyse dog's birth. So it's not... And it seemed like in the same world as that, which is why we did that joke. We didn't think it was real. And... Um, then suddenly, oh, like profits. Or something. Yeah. I didn't really know. Well, I found surprise. I remember we tried to do a few Jimmy Savile jokes in different shows, and we were told we couldn't do it because it was the reason he got away with it. All really, ironically, as it's turned out, is because he was very litigious. So if you said anything, he would sue. So the BBC, our producer, would say, "Oh, don't make a joke about Jimmy Savile because if you if you do anything slightly euphemistic around anything around that, he'll sue." And that's how he kept that power. Ironically, now the BBC having to pay out rather more money than they would have had to do for our stupid joke. But I can't understand why that one... Well, again, maybe it's to do with the the way the thing thing was... You know, maybe it was just at the last minute, you know, and no one had time to check it. I mean, there were were things like that. We had costumes on. Someone had got us some 
admittedly not a very good costume. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll quickly. Uh, do you remember uh, just in the in the milk drinking thing? There was a bit with the unusual music in that that I think you must have chosen. Was that was that was that different? It goes it goes food and milk, and then there's a bit when we reveal the milk. But it goes. Did you choose that music? That was fucking insane. Uh, so. Uh, There's uh, Men of Achievement 1974, which I was very upset. Uh, Now it's popular, but there it was. I was very upset that that never kicked off. I thought that was going to be the the real thing that propelled us to the big time, which was genuinely a book. I think people didn't understand what it was. But you'd found it at a. No, you jumble found it, we find, Well, we found it at some junk shop. We had a few copies Again, this, of it. this is another weird thing about this. Is that it's sort of, we would find an odd thing, like a weird leaflet or a strange book, and think, oh, let's do something with this. And, and, in, and in Fist of Fun, very much the first series particularly had a, a sensibility of sort of bricolage, of all these sort of found objects cobbled together. And I suspect that sensibility has sort of disappeared because of the internet, because you can find things, because there's websites called stuff I found on the floor and things like that <laughs> so everyone can kind of do that Whereas it, well, I think part of what informed our sense of humour was like random things that we found on the floor and then we or, or just in a junk shop and then we'd sort of think well what if you chose to focus in massively on this but of course that, I think that sort of sensibility has disappeared because the younger because people today expect to be able to find anything they're looking for I mean another example of that was um, the lettuce uh, with this thing with a sort of family of vegetables and we just sort of move them around and make stupid noises and it was sort of received with <laughs> hostil- naked hostility really. <laughs> but then in, in the 11 was it called the 11 o'clock show yeah. afterwards yeah. yeah they had a thing which was the same about two years later but it was like vibrators and dildos and things <laughs> it was just like a rip off of it but it, we were like with sex toys so like Morons would laugh at it, you know. And uh, so there, there were weird kind of things that were sort of pointless things. But then other people had the genius uh, to make them obscene, therefore funny. Later one on, of the uh, sons, I think, of one of the men of achievement 1974 we featured once emailed me to ask me why we did it. Yeah. Uh, and he said, was it? And I said, it was out of a sense of just this is a ridiculous vanity project and it was kind of well, funny. That's very sensitive he had a, to say that. He had, a, he had a funny. <laughs> and he said, was it partly because we chose funny pictures because they yeah, were all yeah. the guys with stupid facial hair. Well, it was hair. a book where people basically paid to be in a book in yeah. 1974 to say that they were important. Uh, and there was a, you know, much like deep. Rich appearing in major venues at Edinburgh now. LAUGHTER <laughs> uh, so, um, well, we're talking about Rod Hull, uh, who we were going to try and do uh, Rod Hull sketches in the second series of uh, this morning, Richard, not Judy. Uh, but um, unfortunately, as we sat on the set rehearsing the first episode after having recorded six episodes of uh, a sketch where the character of Rod Hull, a man who thinks he's Rod Hull or pretends to be Rod Hull in return for getting jelly, does a task. <laughs> but because he refuses to have a false, admit that he has a false arm during the task, he then dies at the end of each sketch. We then got the news as we sat on set that the real Rod Hull had fallen off of the roof. And I would, I would hope that the rich could remember, he may remember better than me, I would hope that we took a moment to feel awful about Rod Hull <laughs> before we realised we had a massive gap in Netflix. So, uh, I, I, the first thing I thought was, oh, fuck, we can't do the sketches. No, right. <laughs> 
And then I thought, ah, oh, oh, it is sad that the man is dead. Well, but yeah, we I... did meet him, so it was, it was uh, sad that he died. But that was, uh, again, that's, that was, uh, you can see one, one of them is online, Gareth Karavec, uh, his son, uh, has, uh, Gareth Karavec, who was our director, who has also sadly died. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, his son edited one of them together, so if you go, go on YouTube, or I suspect on this DVD somewhere, uh, you will be able to uh, find one of them put together in most of its glory but we recorded about four or five yeah there was a rugby one as well wasn't there didn't make it yeah, yeah. There's rugby there's a fencing one yeah I don't know if we've got the scripts anywhere mm. I mean you know enough time has passed I remember John Plowman I doubt he'll be able John... to get his own vehicle now <laughs> John Plowman asked to, years later. asked to watch them to check whether it was alright I remember him going up and I just watched the sketches and then he went he came back and went yeah we can't do that <laughs> <laughs> it was, but we did have a little tribute to Rod Hull at the end of that series. Did we? Well, yeah, we think at the end it, was end, it ended with the false Rod Hull sitting by the phone going, ring, please ring, why is no one ringing me anymore? Again, that whole Rod Hull thing was another thing that came out of, um, on the radio, we used, to, we used to write the scripts in the day and then throw these voices at the last minute at people and uh, we said to Kevin Eldon, can you do Rod Hull? And he went, no, and he did this sort of kind of voice. We went, oh, that'll do. I think he had a cold as well. Yeah, he had a cold, and then that sort of suggested this other character that was someone doing it, who wasn't Rod Hull, pretending to be. And so lots of things are as a result of accidents. And the the fact that um, the show went out live and was put together in a hurry, I think, gave you... uh, It it forced you to, 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 to try to run with things that perhaps... Um, if you'd had more time, you would have abandoned. But which, because of that, became quite good things in their own right. Yeah, and we, I think we ended up doing more uh, Simon Quinlank as a result of uh, that. Not sure they were quite as good as the ones from the. No. There was that weird one with the was it the last one was that in Fist of Fun or was that in um, This Morning where they the last one was where he basically went mad and saw loads of images of himself. Oh, yeah. I well, I remember doing a load of drawings. And yeah. yeah, that was good fun, wasn't it? That was nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, so uh, I mean, maybe we could get the, uh, the other guys uh, back on, if we like. Are you around, uh, Trevor and uh, Paul Putner? Come back in, in, find a seat and come in. Give it a round of applause for when Trevor. When you say find a seat. They can sit down, we'll find some seats. Over here. <laughs> you sit in that one. You sit in that one. You sit in that one. I'll, I'll go on the end. <laughs> you sit there. I'll go on here. So, uh, ask them some questions, Stu. Ask these. What, they what remember is your favourite character that you have played? <laughs> Richard Herring has made you do. Um, I, I, I think Peter Gibbs. Yeah, we didn't talk about Peter yeah. Gibbs. You know what's really awful about that? Peter Gibbs was, um, this was this When Things Fall Over, um, which was like a parody of these kind of cheap um, cable channel shows of clips of low-level disasters. And um, uh, we, we wrote it together, but the impetus was basically my memories of my childhood of being in a divorced family with various people like having to do access days and, you know, the, the sort of meat of it leading up to the 
the uh, the stuff falling on the people was all just actual memories from my childhood. And I, and I uh, mean the bit when you're in your pants. There was a bit where Peter Gibbs is the father of the little boy, and he's just in his pants and he's watching television and uh, he's eating yogurt and all the yogurt goes all over him. Beetroot. Get it wrong. Beetroot. Beetroot. Yeah. Well, my with my well, it's based on Saturdays with my dad and. eat like different snacks that he got out of little pots and they would inevitably get he didn't he only used to wear underpants at the weekend he didn't wear any clothes and um he's a hilarious bloke and um the tragedy about those things all the people that I wrote about who seemed comical to me at the time they're all dead now well they are and it's and it's a weird like I don't think I'll be able to watch them again because it seemed you'd sort of fed this stuff into this rather light-hearted thing. And then as you get older and you become a parent, you sort of think about what would have been going through those people's minds as adults, dealing with children, dealing with their relationships. And when we wrote this programme, I was 27, 28, and you were still young enough to not really have any real connection with the world and, um, or with responsibilities or emotional ties and uh, well, they, they, I think they're very you know there's, there's a there's a kindness to them there's a yeah. there's a feeling of that within the within I mean it's sort of it, it's great within a sketch that's got stupid stuff like talking organs and lettuce <laughs> leaves to have something that was suddenly quite yeah. dark and but I mean, that happens a lot in the show there's a lot yeah. of very but dark the journey bits. the arc of Peter Gibbs yeah. it yeah. starts off where he just talks about uh, his son getting stung by a bee <laughs> And it's just him sort of talking about, you know, being a weekend dad and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, well, you did it incredibly well. I mean, <laughs> you, you were given a very lightweight thing, and you gave a terrible death to it. <laughs> oh, but, <laughs> but, but, but the, the, you know. well, you had me rolling around in my pants. Well, <laughs> outside with Emma yeah, Kennedy yeah. opening the uh, opening the curtains, going. Fucking hell! <laughs> uh, which is mimed, but you can clearly see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember a number of things. I remember, I remember going in the white line of Mortimer on um, on uh, Stroud Green Road in the afternoon once, and there being this couple that had obviously got a divorce, but were trying to thrash something out, and uh, they were having some pub lunch, you know, and the man was. The woman had held it together, and the man was getting more and more depressed and desperate, and that that went into a whole one of those. And the thing of uh, I remember stumbling across the pornography collection of one of my mum's boyfriends, and that went into one of those where all, all the pornography fell out on him. It's so it's so well-meaning, and the one in the pub where you know, she. she it's, it's really nice because the, they're in the pub and you're trying to reconcile she's just meeting up with you and she's having spaghetti and you're really cross that she's having this is yeah, really yeah, yeah. Well, I mean it's nineteen nineties food but it's a really horrible looking plate of spaghetti with red sauce on it yeah. Yeah. That, was just, that was just this thing that I saw and, I, and, and um, weirdly I don't know if I would do that now because I don't, I don't I would feel bad about looking at someone's life and thinking oh god that's awful how can we make a, a funny? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I could do that now, and I, I would I would go through all sorts of layers of distancing and of changing details. And the tragedy is, it wouldn't be as funny because there's something about a real detail. Yeah. It's normally 
absolutely perfect, and it wouldn't you couldn't imagine the thing um, because there's something about the banality of everyday life and the mundanity of things that is just absolutely perfect. And I think I, pretty soon after we worked on those, I would never have done anything like that again because I would have felt really bad about being like a vampire, sort of feeding off people's uh, unhappiness and misery and the sort of... <laughs> for, you know, for a laugh. For a laugh, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I couldn't do it now. And actually, you know, the, 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 I think there's a window that you miss where you, you have a freedom to do those kind of things. And I think as you become sort of uh, drawn into society as a result of marriage or children or, you know, relationships with other kids' parents or whatever. You don't have that freedom to find it all utterly banal and abhorrent because you're a part of it. Do do you think that when John Cleese said, you know, sketch comedy is a young man's game, is that what he was kind of uh, hinting at? That you're able to go, ah, look at this loser. Look, he's a failed showbiz and showbiz entertainer, yeah. look at these failed adults and you're playing people, you know, a lot older than yourself and you suddenly go, ah. Oh, yeah, you're that yes. person. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not a bad thing to be involved in society and have responsibilities to children. As you'll, you'll find you may enjoy it. You may get some blogs out of it. But, uh, yeah, but you, you'll find that, that you do suddenly things that you previously had a distance for, from and found ridiculous you're a part of them, so it's harder to get a distance on them. And that, that whole... The, the family relationships in um, When Things Fall Over, that was sort of one of the... You know, there, there was a... If it had been five years later, I couldn't have written those because um, they they would be too close to home. And um, also, it w- they would have felt like a betrayal of of trust. But, I, but you know, I, I, I probably... I'm not really looking forward to seeing them again. I think when I, when I tell my son that my dad spent the whole weekend just in his pants <laughs> watching sport and giving me like beet troop, <laughs> sort of jam out of pots on bread, he finds it hilarious, which gives me the, the, the suggestion that on some level I'm, I'm better than that. But I, I don't, I don't, you know, but, but I think it's also a look back to, you know, the 70s, 80s when there's a sort of pressure. Parents now are supposed to be, you're supposed to do stuff and uh, engage. You know, really, we were, I think we were. I mean, I remember being. I might even have patterned in that in, in one of those episodes. I remember just being sort of left in a car outside a pub with Chris. Do you remember that? Did that happen to you? Were you just like left? Oh yeah. I mean, thoughts? I don't remember it from the show. <laughs> no, but do you remember being just? Shut in a car outside a pub. I was once when I was a baby, I was left in a car for a bit too long, and well, yeah, yeah, my, yeah, my parents came back and I'd nearly died. Yeah, uh, and it's you know I was really red. Yeah, they left me a bit too long with the window open a little bit, and yeah. uh, I think it probably accounts for a lot. But you know, you no, no, sort of no, you sort of think if that had happened, you know, if they yeah. left another half an hour, that's no. A so I mean, story, that, that whole thing about yeah. families, then it was about that sort of rather more robust attitude people had to yeah. kids and family in that period, and like you know, I mean, I don't remember being sort of yeah. You get, you get the pub. You pull up outside the car. You pull in the car outside the pub. Your dad goes in, gets you a can of coke and a packet of crisps, and he locks you in the car. <laughs> like there are people who have gone to prison for that now. In the sixties, in the seventies, that was, you know, at least you had crisps. You know, it's like that was considered a sort of, 
you know, a thoughtful parent. And then they would drive you home drunk. You know? <laughs> so, and that, that whole thing was... That, that, that was the only... That's one of the only things, weirdly, in my whole life of doing comedy that I've ever put any of my self into. And uh, I did that because I was confident it would be forgotten. <laughs> that Richard Herring and Chris Evans of Go Fast Strike have excavated it yeah. and now made me confront this terrible history. That'd be a but, good thing, um, I think. At uh, least I, I can look at you as my son. <laughs> <laughs> well, did, you, did you cover Emma Kennedy in baked beans out of some sexual desire to see Emma I Kennedy covered in baked beans? I can't remember what that was about. I, me- I can't remember what that was about. I remember, I, I don't know. Did that happen to your mum? No. <laughs> No, I don't know what that was about. No, that wasn't. I can't actually remember that one. <laughs> no, it was when... I remember weirdly. Again, this dates it. That um, when when we filmed the one where all the pornography fell out of the cupboard on the child's head, <laughs> the um, the the editors of Men Only got in touch with us and said thanks for plugging our magazine, <laughs> and they s- sent loads of pornography. Hey, to the, yeah, yeah. You and the two, bl- the bloke that was the editor went on to be quite a good comedy writer, actually. And one of them was, yeah, yeah, anyway, right, sketch people. But it was kind of weird, like it was uh, sort of, again, looking back to the 90s, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was funny, wasn't it? Like, that kind of, uh, people would get in touch. When we, when we went to get those shirts? Yeah, we went to, well, you were ridiculous because you were so concerned about, we went to Ted Baker to the actual... They wanted uh, to give us some shirts, so we went Baker. To, we went to Ted Baker, which made, you know, made really expensive shirts. In the t- 90s, when they yeah. were trending. Yeah. And uh, to, with a view to wearing their shirts on TV. <laughs> and, uh, and it was quite... The, the costume lady had sorted this all out for us, and we might get some free shirts. And then she said, I'm embarrassed to wear shirts like this, and if I do, I always cut the name of the shirt off of the shirts <laughs> in the meeting. So the blokes went... All right, well, and then we didn't get any free shirts, so, then, no, well, so we had to pay. We had to pay for them. We still wore their shirts, but we had to yeah. pay. For them. They were nice shirts. They were. You gave me all of yours. I get give well, them some. I, I can't away. fit into any of those shirts. <laughs> I expect you can now get back into yeah, all your shirts. I can start. See, it's a start. It's a nice thing about uh, losing a bit of weight. Yeah. And uh, the curious orange came about because you, the, you, well, a it was from the fall, but was it? Yeah, also? it's an experimental '60s Swedish yeah. film, and, uh, and so the phrase was in my head: curious yeah. orange. So I, uh, I thought, well, you know, that's all it takes, isn't it? Well, yeah. on, on some level, there's a subliminal relationship in people's minds, like an orange that was curious. It wasn't, didn't really... And there was a little bit of music from the fall that would serve as an intro. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I expect that, you know, that's all it takes, isn't it? Just it two words. Sort of notes together. and queries type yeah, of thing, you know, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Did Marky e. Smith ever comment on that? I, know he's um, I heard from his manager that he tried to get some money out of the BBC for the music <laughs> being played, but oh, there really? was a blanket agreement... Yeah with the BBC that you don't get any money from anything. I, I remember you saying at the time... <laughs> you, you, I think you did broach it with him a, yeah. after a gig or something. And he just went, oh, it's mad, that, isn't it? Well, <laughs> there's a funny thing where he... He's, I don't know if he hates me, but he's, he often puts my name into songs in a really uncomplimentary way. Which, uh, <laughs> I suspect means he probably does hate me. If I ever end up like Stuart Lee, cut off my head with a garden tool. And there's a thing on the new live album, I can't even hear it. I can just, I can just hear my name in the middle of a load of slurring. <laughs> I wonder what that is. But, He's um, trying to make you curious, isn't he? Well, you know, yeah. But, I mean, you know, that, that's, all, that, that's one of those... He's always been an inspiration. And... Um, I, I, I suppose one of the one of the mistakes I've made in having them as an inspiration is you sometimes 
you sometimes reference a thing and you uh, suspect that everyone's going to go, ha ha, that's a reference to the fall, hilarious. But in fact, they don't know the source, so they think it's your sort of thing. And I probably wouldn't do it again, because um, y- you can't do a homage to something if the thing's less well-known than you are. <laughs> and what a lot of these young XFM DJs that do stand-up who rip me off have to realise <laughs> is... Uh, they might be doing a bit of my routine change to make fun of me, but the reviewer doesn't know the source material, so thinks that they're some kind of genius when in fact they're a twat. But actually, there was, there was loads of stuff fed in from obscure popular culture into those. I mean, you're, you're you know, a, a maven for that kind of thing, and you sort of informed us of loads of stuff. And again, I mean, I think half the fun of it was thinking, I wonder if people will spot this. And it's a very 20, 30-something sort of thing to do to sort of drop all these references in, like with the particular kinds of shots you would choose and film stuff or whatever. And we had a, a lot of fun doing that. Like part of finding your own voice, actually, is assimilating influences from other things. Uh, I remember you agonising if you, if you felt in any way whatsoever you might be plagiarising at all. And um, it's when you had the Curious, song, uh, Curious Orange singing, I had a little donkey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think you later put in the. Well, I've the, done it. So, uh, I mean, is that the, a song the, I remember? Weekend, I remember my. Or, uh, well, I remember got my really grand- worried about no, it. No, my granddad it. sang it to me as a kid, and it was obviously a, a musical song from the Midlands. But weirdly, the only. I had a little donkey. I had a little donkey. I kept him in the yard. One day in the winter time when it was snowing hard, Mother said the donkey would be cold out in the stall. Bring him in the kitchen. That one. Anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> I think he was hoping you'd join in there, yeah. but that yeah. was. Well, the, the, only, the only extant uh, version of it was um, from Rutland Weekend Television, which was Eric Idle's post Python thing, where he did it with those blokes from Pato, didn't he? Yeah, something. Prog rock band. I remember sort of mentioned it to you, just went, yeah, yeah. But obviously, well, they it knew it. Matter. obviously they knew it from earlier, but I didn't yeah. know about that. Then. Only you would know about that. And that's how you well, found out how to sing it. Oh, no, no, you're, I mean, you're an incredible git. You know, no, <laughs> I mean, you know about everything. I don't know how you... You know about... You know all things. <laughs> what, what kind you of... know all different kinds of music and all films. You know more music and films than you've had time in your life to watch <laughs> or listen to. What are you? Like an immortal... <laughs> character from beyond I am the Oracle of Delphi yeah but, <laughs> yeah, but it all kind of hits a ceiling around 2002 yeah. <laughs> and we tried to get Jason Orange uh, in to be the Curious Orange on one occasion that's right was that one of the times you weren't there because it might, it might be I can't remember I mean we tried to get Robbie Williams yeah, we, we tried to get, get Rob- Greg Evigan and we, ne- we weren't, never got cool enough. Like a lot of those other shows were cool that they would have got Robbie Williams. Yeah, but you know what? Wasn't that a blessing? I mean, again, it was sort of being under the radar. And, um, you know, there was a, a point where Neiman and Badil were on the front of the uh, NME and you, like, rightly identified me as 20-something as having been the sort of person that would have liked that. Um, but actually, it was a narrow escape from... Um, it was a narrow escape for both of us from being identified with a particular period or with a particular um, uh, period of fashion and that you're, you're able to just carry on and um, 
the people that are kind enough to come and see you uh, 20 years later uh, it, it, they're not held into a particular period like you're you know so I think it was it was really actually that stuff was really lucky like at the time I remember you'd sort of think how come these people can tour at these levels and not lose money and be on all these things but actually the long game of being able to then do stuff like this 20 years later and being I mean can David Baddiel do a podcast where he plays snooker against himself? I don't think he can. No, he <laughs> can't do that. And I'm not trying to be facetious. Thing, it's actually an amazing thing that you can. You know, you've, you've said this yourself a lot that, it, that you can have the fluidity to be able to do that. And partly is because somehow we got through that period when comedy was the new rock and roll without anyone really. Well, also, it. what's kind of interesting, I think, out of that out of sort of the, the, the new uh, the uh, deal and Skinner is that kind of new lab thing. That yeah, it's all well. like now, twenty years on. That it's starts toxic. to well, it starts to look like you know you'll be like the nineteen seventies guys telling racist jokes. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. you're the if you're the nineteen nineties guys going yeah anal sex tits, you know, which we I think you know we didn't escape entirely from doing jokes like that. No, but, in, but we, in, there was but because we now control um, the rights to our own um, old DVDs, <laughs> we're able to edit those <laughs> bits out. <laughs> If anything, though, it's kind of it's interesting the other way because you're you're so puritanical in in you know that was yeah. the joke about it. Yeah, you're yeah. having to go at uh, Gail Porter all the way through in the series in a way that sort of feels a little bit cruel now in retrospect, yeah. but but it's from the point of view of, of, of a sort of feminist uh, perspective, I suppose. Yeah. Shrink wrapped chicken. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, th- well, we'll see if that makes the. Uh... <laughs> The thing yeah, is, it, it, sort of, it sort of has to, because it's all the way through yeah. every... <laughs> well, do you, well, you remember your, uh, your Mel C? I want yeah. your gametes. Yeah. <laughs> what? I did it five oh, times. Ugly, ugly spice and yeah. all that. Yeah. So there, 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 there's elements of it, but to actually be associated with... And that routine is still about, it's still about yeah, taking yeah. the piss out. Well, we we, we escaped um, mid-90s lad culture via not being invited to join in with it. <laughs> Talk, talking of which, uh, is Trevor still not allowed to speak? <laughs> While Stu is on stage, it was mainly Stu who stopped that. Why was that? I can't remember why that happened. He was jealous. <laughs> I think it was just for the... I don't think it was a genuine... It wasn't genuinely that we couldn't afford to pay you anymore, but it was just the funny idea that that would be the case. How did you, how did you feel about that? I, it was it was really heartbreaking for me. It was awful. <laughs> I, I, well, I looked up to you two. Weirdly, you two were like my two dads in comedy, and and I looked up. What to we you. were like your two dads, or we were like my two dads from the sitcom. Not Greg like Evigan and Paul Rice. <laughs> Not you weren't like them, <laughs> okay. but you were you were like you were like your two dads. Yeah, Paul was like a mum to me, because yeah. I didn't have. I knew Paul loved me, and I didn't have to prove anything to him. But you yeah. two, I, I felt you know, I had to prove myself, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, I still do. Yeah, you still got a lot to prove, son. Thanks. So, uh, yeah. um, there's a so, fair, there's a fair. Because we, I think we were going for that sort of Samuel Beckett thing. Well, certainly in Fist of Fun, where it was like we were all kicking, we were all kicking the person down. We were all fairly sad. Yeah. And you were kicking me, and I was kicking Pete. And yeah. in this, you know, yeah. we, there was a, there's quite a lot of nasty bullying that I don't really like looking looking back at because I don't think I think it doesn't. There, you know, there's plenty of bits that you look at. Yeah. 50, and there would have to be that 15 years later you look back and go, well, I wish I hadn't. Pulled that slightly disabled person face during that routine, yeah. uh, or whatever. So you know, I think. But then that's that's all about living and learning and, and changing. You know, so it's, yeah. it's but, a, you know, it can be up. it can be edited out. It will. It be. can be edited. Out. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be left with the hardly anything. Few of the episodes. Just <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so do you think it would have suffered from e-petitions? Well, you know, uh, that, that's another weird thing, is, uh, is that, in a way, we tried to do stuff that created a relationship with the audience and encouraged them to write in and get involved in things and sort of create the comedy themselves and then we'd sort of roll with it. Um, now, uh, 20 years later, I mean, it would almost be unmanageable because the amount of feedback you'd get from the internet and Twitter would um, be out of control. You couldn't, you couldn't really do it. In fact, things would get... If you said to people now, why don't you write, try and write the biggest swear word you can and hang it off a building? <laughs> it would, you know, it would, so many people would do that. It would be appalling. I think it was in a weird window yeah. between this sort of uh, you know, post-punk thing of like, let's involve the people. And yet, actually, the te- pretty soon, the technology existed to involve the people so thoroughly that it would have been unworkable because um, they'd have been far too involved. I think what probably would have happened that um, we missed out on is that uh, despite the fact that there wasn't a, a critical approval for it or an approval from the um, broadcaster, there would have, if there'd been uh, a Twitter and the internet, there would have been a visible groundswell of support from viewers that might have changed um, a uh, commissioner's mind about things. And, and certainly, you know, I know I've benefited from that subsequently. Um, but I don't know if that would have been the right thing, because actually, I think it, it, had, it had done what it set out to, and it lives in the memory in quite an exciting way for people, partly because it was, um, it was truncated. And uh, to look back at it now, when the DVD comes out, I think people will go, how was that ever allowed to happen? And the answer is, it wasn't really, it was an accident. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, a- anything you talk about from popular culture now, if it's before 2000, you have to factor in the fact that Twitter and the internet didn't really exist in the way it does now. And that, that just changes everything. I mean, uh, we, we sort of tried to... We sort of tried to get that kind of thing going with all the write-in things on the radio. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, know, we did respond... To everyone who wrote to us, yeah. manually writing everyone letters back. And I mean, only I, I, people wrote four letters a week. Yeah. Did we not write? To I mean, I still I still meet people to this day who are like thirty five, forty now, who've come to see you for twenty years because you uh, replied to a letter they sent. And of course, you could do that then because it was quite hard to send in a letter. Whereas now, you know, anyone can send off an email, which is devalued the whole notion of interaction between... Uh, and uh, I, mean, I, I wrote a fan letter to The Fall in 1982, and uh, Steve Hanley, the bass player, replied to it with a postcard from Berlin. And uh, earlier this year, which is 32 years later, I uh, you know, wrote a little bit about his book and chaired a discussion when he did a launch for it. And, and it's partly because of that uh, incredible thing to a 14-year-old that it, it makes a big... Uh, impression, but I don't know if it has the same uh, currency anymore. You know. Well, I don't know. See what people sometimes seem impressed if you reply. I mean, some people seem impressed if you reply to a tweet, you know, and it's a different yeah. sort of thing, but it's, uh, uh, it's a lot easier to do. But it's, there's a, I suppose it breaks down that uh, division as well. So maybe in the 90s, people who were on TV were very far aloof, and now it's only, it's only people. I never felt like we were on TV. I felt like we were sort of allowed in for a bit but I don't yeah. think we were typical of you know I don't think we were typical no. in that we were we were kind of accessible <laughs> we were sort of yeah. internet accessible well you were, you always had a, a sense of the absurdity of it which was very refreshing I mean I we all hear horror stories in 
in this business, you all hear horror stories of someone who's been going two years and gets a teddy show and suddenly they expect to have their ciabatta delivered to them by an oiled slave. <laughs> Whereas we always found... A, you, you were very good at finding the whole thing ridiculous. Um, and, and all those routines that were in Vista Fun about... I stood next to Jeremy Praxman, I touched his sleeve and stuff like that were <laughs> tragedy. They were based on actual responses <laughs> to the situation of being within the orbit of uh, fame. And um, I, I still feel like I don't belong. I know that's an increasingly untenable, ludicrous position to, to feel like, but you, you, you sort of feel like uh, it's something that's happening to other people and you get to spectate on it. And also you're, you're acutely aware of the bizarre behaviour of... Uh, of other people, and I think you were, you were always really alert to that, which was a great thing in that we managed to maintain the feeling that the programme shouldn't have been on and we shouldn't have been allowed to do it. Yeah. Of course, well, I actually, think the irony was that was the case. Yeah. Uh, but that's why it's good we didn't get Jason Orange and Robbie Williams to be in it, you know, because it would have given it a sense of, uh, you know, being part of everything, and it really was. <laughs> we really weren't uh, part of anything. <laughs> what, what, what was it, um, Richard Maidley? Judy Finnegan actually said the, the finest... They said, um, w- w- well, because Frank Skinner had been on Richard Madeley and Judy Finnegan's programme, there was obviously some PR deal done with our management where we had to be on the next week and they greeted us with a heavy heart <laughs> and sat through one of our bits. And then afterwards she said, yeah, it's comedy about nothing really, isn't it? <laughs> Which actually, I think, was what we'd been aiming for. <laughs> but also on that, uh, Richard Madeley, they'd gone with this before. We want four, because it's school uh, half term, we went to come up with four things that you know, kids can be doing, four activities that kids can be doing, a joke about that. And so instead of doing that, Richard Madeley went, You guys, you're so funny, you can make a joke about anything. Tell us a joke about And then he named one of the things he knew we had. So it, and then it wasn't really a joke we had prepared anyway, yeah, but it was yeah. such an odd thing, to, odd way to get into it, <laughs> to make this sort of false uh, leap. Do you know what? This might be your, your out point. Okay. But years later, <laughs> I was on a chat show with Richard Madeley years, I don't know why or what it was, about five years, ten years later. He said, Oh, yeah, I remember you, blah, blah, blah. And then. Apropos of nothing, he started telling me this anecdote about how he and Judy had been on a holiday in a cottage in the countryside somewhere, and he looked out of the window and he'd seen um, a man in the field having sex with a donkey. <laughs> and um, he called her over to look at it. And, yeah. uh, well, I'm just saying that's what he, You know, he didn't. I think he was trying to get in with me. Yeah, yeah. Sort of thing like... Well, I did their show a couple of times when they went to Channel 4. And they, did watched... they mention that to you? He didn't talk about that, but no. he did... Uh... Well, it's well, no I... secret affair anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, he was noticeably like, you know, trying to be, get in with you and be sweary. I don't know if they real, remembered who I was or knew no. I was. But uh, I mean, it wasn't really anything to do with them. It was sort of, I suppose, a little bit cruel. The one thing we had that was weird was we... Uh, the, one of the first dates of our tour after the first series of This One of Rich Not Judy was Whole Truck Theatre. And um, some people that were really visibly unhappy in the front row left at half-time. And we found out later they'd been expecting to see uh, Judy Finnegan and Richard Maiden. Um, and we often speculated at which point during the first hour did they decide they probably weren't going to show up. 
Um, and, um, but politely waited until half time. The other thing, and this is again, is, ruins that would have been a good out point, but is there was some uh, graffiti in the toilets there, I remember, about the quality of the excrement of um, the bass player from Amazing Blondell, who in the early 70s Lincolnshire progressive rock band. <laughs> Which I was considerably more interested in than you. Because <laughs> Eddie Baird's shit really stinks. And um, Amazing Blondell had just got back together. Yeah. And one of their warm-up gigs had been at... Uh, and I was going, wow, Eddie Baird from Amazing Blondell's shit really stinks. Is that, was Francis Monkman? <laughs> no, he was in um, Caravan. No, he was in... He was in, um, he was in Caravan, Francis Monkman. Was he? Yeah. Oh, no, I thought yeah. he was no, in Amazing uh, Blondell. No, he was from See, the... I'm not that clever. Canterbury. <laughs> no, he was in... Um, Curved air. Curved air. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's definitely no, this not turned into an end point now. <laughs> <laughs> <That> is... <laughs> Maybe the last word should go to Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, listen to you guys. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks for inviting me on stage to listen on stage. Uh, well, I mean, it was great listening backstage, but a bit on stage at this thing. It's just they're different when you can see the words coming out of. Uh, the sweat and you oh yeah it puts it in the context the sweaty faces so um, thanks thanks for that you know what um, you'll have a sweaty face when you're older <laughs> but a sweaty it'll be small though won't it Stuart it'll be a small sweaty face he's 41 years old can you believe he's it he's not he is I'm not um, <laughs> but would you like to apologise to uh, people with small faces now after, um, yeah, yeah I mean you know um, there's so many things I'd like to apologise for uh, from the 90s and it's great that you've, um, you've, you've led that, the charge for the small face and um, it's just one of the many things that I'm sure will come to rain down upon us of criticisms when the whole thing actually goes out um, also I think that it, it, you know it's you're, you're, this odd footnote in this but of course your own stand up is actually superb and is of far greater value than anything that we'll be releasing that gives any indication of what you do. So, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a tragedy. And most people that know you will see you something doing, see you doing something that's of far less value than your own work, which is a, a grim tragedy. <laughs> it was good when you dressed up as a bit of crest, though. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that, that, was, that was very good. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Lee, Paul Butler, Thank you for coming. You have been listening to Richard Herring's Letter Square Theatre Podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Stuart Lee. Who's that? Uh, the music you're listening to is by Pest. Uh, thank you to Orange Mark at the British Comedy Guide, uh, who probably has nothing to do with this one, to be honest. Uh, thank you to Chris Evans, not that one, from Go Faster Stripe, who has lots to do with it. Uh, thank you to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre for having us uh, during this run. It's been fantastic. Uh, my producer is Dave Cribb. Uh, it is a fuzz. GoFasterStripe.com and Sky Potato Production. We'll be back in May next year. Bye! Woohoo! That's it. It's the end of the series. Thank you so much for your support in this series. It's been terrific fun, apart from that last one with Stuart Lee, which was not as much fun. So I <laughs> uh, do come and see me on tour, richardherring.com for all the details. Go and buy a DVD from gofasterstripe.com or a badge from gofasterstripe.com slash badges. Or just tell your friends about this phenomenal podcast. We'll be back in June and July with some more uh, and then hopefully if we can carry on 
just making a living at it somehow, we can carry on doing these into the future. Any contribution you can make is massively appreciated, but we'll carry on without you. That's just the way we are. We ne- we don't need money. Please, my baby needs food and shoes. Thanks for listening. See you in a few months. Goodbye.